Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different Starting Over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast and being here today. If you are new, big welcome to you. You're going to find lots of interviews and solo episodes which are all designed to help you on your healing, self-development and spiritual growth journey. If you're not new, welcome back. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Now over onto the episode today, we welcome a cult survivor, Petra Valzebor. So she was born and raised in the infamous Children of God cult, and she is now a renowned mental health advocate. She's a qualified psychotherapist, and she's also the CEO and founder of PVL Mental Health Consultancy in London. She's also a sought-after global keynote and TEDx speaker. Now, on the episode today, we talk about Petra's own starting over story, you know, what it was like growing up in a cult moving from country to country, being on missions, being in a community where punishment and ostracism was the norm to leaving, choosing to leave and embarking on her own healing journey. We discuss things like, is there a truth? Maybe there's not the truth, but there's your truth. She talks about the nuances of life and learning that gray areas matter when she'd been raised in an environment that really prioritized or exemplified black and white thinking she also and this is really a sign of someone who's healed can talk about the benefits of her upbringing and actually what's given her an edge in in mental health because of the trauma she faced we then in the second part of the episode we go on to a discussion about mental health in the workplace obviously this links to her consultancy but we really drill in on how we can cultivate better mental health at work. And that will be, she answers specific questions on what we can do as individuals, either in a leadership managerial position or lower down and how we can affect change for our well-being. She also addresses some of the misconceptions around mental health in a workplace, which I think is also a really important discussion. So if this episode is for you, please or know somebody who it will suit please do send it along to them always helps a great deal when you share with others and if you haven't already click follow wherever you're listening to this but with no further ado here is Petra Petra, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a true pleasure to have you. you. Your story, when I first discovered you through a TED Talk, I was like, oh, mind blown. And also just the epitome of what I try and share through this podcast in people really transforming their lives in the face of adversity, often beyond our own circumstance, personal control. And I think you are just really a beacon of hope for people who are going through difficult times or have been through traumatic experiences in their lives. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. 
Thank you so much. That's um, you're bigging it up there. I hope I don't disappoint. (laughs) (laughs) I want to start actually going back to your childhood because you didn't have the most normal of upbringings, understatement. So can you walk us through a little bit about your life as little Petra, where you grew up and what you're Yeah, yeah, no problem. So I was born and raised in in the notorious Children of God cult. But of course, when you're a kid born and raised into something, you don't think of it in those terms, do you? And there were plenty of exciting bits. So think of it's it's funny these days when I say I was I grew up in communes. Quite a few of the kind of younger sort of twenties generation will cut their faces will light up and they'll think like, "Ooh, is that the solution to like the mental health problems of the world today? Having some kind of community." And I have to like calm them down, you know, and just help them think about uh, there was a dark side as well, of course. Um, but I'm one of five siblings. Uh, I'm in a blended family. So my stepdad's from from the States. My mother's from Holland and my biological father's from Australia. And I grew up in none of those places. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, there was there was lots of music. There was lots of a uh, community feel. But then there was also a, a religious aspect and a sense of you know, if you followed the rules, you were rewarded and that community could do you good. If you didn't follow the rules, you could be punished, shamed, ostracized, you know, disappeared, like a whole host of things. Uh, your family might disown you, you know, but but again, as a child, this is just normal, right? Mm-hmm. That these things happen. And then the narrative after something would happen was very much like, well, God punished them. Don't be like them. It was like a warning. And so the little person that I was, was somebody who got really good at being as invisible as possible, which is hilarious. Uh, you know, my, my, my work now is about being on stages and being visible and vocal about things. But back then, my survival was to keep as quiet as possible, say just enough so you weren't seen as a dissenter or somebody who, who was not agreeing with maybe the beliefs and, and that sort of thing. And I mean, I grew up in India, Brazil, Russia, Kenya, you know, there were commune sort of spots in all these different countries. So you were moving around? Yeah, we would never be in a country longer than three years, never in a house longer than one year. And so there was a lot of forsake things, you know, leave leave your toys, leave your friends, you know, just keep moving. And then a few key things to note, we didn't go to school as kids and the world was going to end. So there were these sorts of um, constructs as well going on in my childhood. Do you know what this story is making me think of a lot? Have you read a book educated by Tara, Tara Westover. Westover? Yeah, 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 for sure. And she, that Armageddonist kind of end of the yeah. world. And then the thing that really spoke to me about her book was the narrative around getting an education once she did. Yeah. And the self-doubt and the process that she goes through while other people are believing in her. And she's just kind of fumbling along trying to learn. Yeah. So before we go on to that, because I do want to go on to that, and of course that ties in entirely with these messages of hope and what has shaped, I imagine, a completely different outlook for you than one that you had in your childhood. But in terms of your daily life, I mean, how did it even work not going to school and legally being able to move from country to country? And was that with the group of people with whom you were in the commune and you moved as a collective or... So we might move as a family, but we would move into a new a commune that had similar structures. So it's not like everyone was moving at once, but we might sort of move to different missions. 
I mean, that, that, that's a long story legally. I mean, I think we bent the rules legally, but also, you know, we would get mission visas or, you know, a variety of ways that, that, that our parents stayed in certain countries. But also, I know in Holland, which is where my passport country is from, homeschooling, which is technically what, you know, they said we were doing, wasn't allowed. So I remember living in Belgium when we were in Europe, just across the border because homeschooling was allowed. I say homeschooling because it was like, you know, um, a, a mixed bag of what that actually looks like. But when you're bouncing around countries, it takes time for anybody to look into you. And that was part of the reason why I guess we moved was to not get caught, as it were. Gosh, it goes, I just can't even imagine. I think it just seems so intangible for so many people. But then really that pause of reflection on the values and beliefs that have been inculcated into us and often without our own awareness or ever questioning just like that is the that is the norm and that's right and that's wrong and that's truth and that's fiction yeah and and that is the connection so over time as I sort of left that situation and had to to manage and overcome my own demons my own mental health challenges thinking my story was so different. So how could anyone ever understand me, right? Which led me to, to really dark places. But I realized that there are some themes that are relatable to most cultures. And those echo what you just said, which is what I grow up with, that is our belief, that is the way things go, whether it's like my family dynamic or whether it's education is the path to success, right? Or um, religion, culture, whatever it might be. And part of my story in order to survive that was leading a double life. So many people can relate to that now, right? Where yeah. I'm in the mental health at workspace. Like what's the mask that you wear to show up, to look successful, to look okay and compare with other Instagram culture and all of that. So there really are, yes, my mind was quite extreme, but it's been really interesting that once I've told my story, the threads of, of relatability that people have gone, you know, why do I think this way? Or why does the the news and the media echo the truth? Like, what is what is there a truth, or is there just my truth? And what is the journey to achieving that? Yeah, absolutely. I totally resonate with the idea of a mask that we wear, and so many of us put one on in one setting, take it off in another, put another one on in another setting, and often without a degree of awareness too, because it's just the done thing, and we don't feel like there's another way and authenticity feels too frightening terrifying terrifying and it's authenticity but it's to be open to the feelings of the past and the present as well so many people are going through life numbing out right whether it's through addictions and that could be you're scrolling on tiktok or netflix or booze or or whatever it is anything to avoid sitting with our own emotional state which I think is part of the problem when it comes to the mental health crisis we find ourselves in. I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back a little bit to your story here, were there themes of abuse that you had to overcome and heal yourself? Absolutely. And I think of a variety of abuse, but it's worth noting that not everyone was an abuser. Like sometimes people think that you know, they immediately think of particular cults where there was violence or where there was mass suicide or, you know, these sorts of things. And it depended 
where you lived and which commune and which leaders you had and who was led by their own power-hungry nature and who translated the beliefs into actions that, you know, affected minors. And you, do you know what I mean? So yeah. there were pockets of, of life that, that weren't abusive other than, you know, uh, emotionally. Uh, there was a lot of physical abuse, like punishment. And for me, because I was quite quiet, I wasn't often the one punished, but I was the one observing it. And it's that kind of trauma by association, right? Where you don't do anything to stop it because you know you'd be in that situation as well. Uh, there was definitely sexual abuse. There was abuses of power more than anything, right? And yeah, and I, I mean, know this you, is your the... story connects to this as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I never, ever want to diminish emotional and psychological abuse because I know firsthand how scarring that can be and it's uh how long term really that can endure as well because it really does shape your your beliefs and how you act in the world and what you think about yourself it's it's all encompassing really but I think going back to what you said about the you know abuse of power this is the common association with a cult because of course what we know of it is that it it centers around one figure in in particular that is a, but there's a hierarchy of course and there's one person that we revere at the center of that was that present for you so what i read about the man david berg founder of this children of god cult this was actually on a bbc article as well and apparently he told members that God was love and love was sex. So there should be no limits regardless of age or relationship. Like, I don't know to what degree this is just mass media stories and ways that we want to get to sell an article or, you know, clickbait or to what degree this was actually the reality that people were living in. Uh, there's definitely some truth to that. There's definitely, if you go uh, um, to, to media outlets and articles, plenty of sensationalist sort of the extremist view that doesn't maybe scope the balance around what our lives actually were like but certainly free love you know um uh, sexual conduct connected to religion all of that again they change the rules at different stages so there's different years where the rules may be changed slightly so there was like my the older generation the first people who were you know were slightly older than me were affected by it in a much bigger way but regardless of like the actions, because plenty of my friends have experienced the abuse connected to that, again, it was the psychological piece around what was good and what would be rewarded and what was bad. So very binary thinking, good, bad, right? Um, good or evil, you know, and you're either for them or you're against them. It was, it was that sort of extreme. And those are the thought patterns that stay with you. So you're just deciding on something in life and it's like it's either this or it's this. Right. And you're thinking, hold on a minute. Life is actually filled with the gray and the nuance of, of being human. And that's a really tough thing to unlearn when your whole neuroplasticity as a child has been taught in that way. Yeah. Unlearning. I love that you just mentioned that. And that must be so central to your story. All the things that you have had to unlearn. Can you walk us over I'm hearing, you know, you had this childhood, which was quite isolated. You had a, a community around you, but there was a lack of stability. You were moving around a lot. There perhaps wasn't one external dominant culture that you were influenced by either in that respect, if you're moving to different countries. I'm not sure you can speak to that. But 
you were still very isolated from the external world and therefore what was it like to re-emerge or come into this now new external world I mean that would be massive right and surely a lot of fear around taking the leap absolutely yeah. So, so just to take those points, so the, the culture thing is interesting because everywhere you went, we had a culture. And yes. so we sometimes I had someone describe it a few years back around who we are now and that there's this feeling of being refugees that have no culture to go back to. And so we are floating in other people's cultures trying to fit in and make do. But actually, there's this sense that when you get 10 of us together, our culture reemerges and it's not the toxic culture, but it's the the memories, the the traditions, the things that normalized us, which a lot of us don't have or have pushed back on, you know, putting it all, throwing the baby out with the bathwater as it were. But we didn't go to school. We weren't allowed to watch certain things or read certain things. So we were sheltered from in that respect. But we were often doing projects or missions or things at a very young age involved in a culture where we were at. So I remember being in India, working with people who were homeless or in Russia with street children. So we were very immersed in the the local space, right? But often um, under the guise, again, a mask from a very young age of we're doing good work and saving your soul and helping you physically, right? Without but, but this very real understanding that people weren't ready for what we actually believed in. So to lock that stuff away and not talk about that, right? So um, I feel like it's given many of us an, an edge in, in the working world because we have adaptability. We might speak more languages. We're able to fit in with different hierarchies, different groups, or it doesn't matter if you're the CEO or the janitor, we could probably adapt and communicate with you. So there's, it's taken me a long time, don't get me wrong, but there's definitely yeah. some edge that, but that my background has given me. But so leaving, so taking the leap, people often say, how did you escape act, you know, assuming that there were some kind of walls that I had to plan an exit from, right? And I sometimes think, well, that would be easy if that's all it was, right? Like scale a wall, dig a tunnel, like that would be simple, right? Compared yeah. to the walls that are in here, right? Absolutely. They're in your heart, your mind, yeah. your brain. And so I dated somebody illegally because we weren't supposed to date outside of the group and then became pregnant with my son. So it all sort of came out. And even though I had done so many good things, I was in leadership. I had proven myself again and again. As soon as they realized I'd made one mistake, it was like, you're going to spend six months being punished and re sort of, um, you got it. Yeah. So luckily my boyfriend, he's now my ex-husband, but my boyfriend at the time said, come to London. Let's see if we can figure this out. And so I moved to London. How old were you at the time? So I'm 22. Which, which if I look back, I think was quite old and like how, like, why wasn't I brave enough to leave before? And, you know, why didn't I know what to do? But remember, I have no education, no means of gaining income. My entire culture and family are in this one situation, you know? And so, and I believed in certain parts of it. Not so much the, like you start telling yourself, well, this little bit is true. So therefore I'm going to rationalize not making this big, scary change. And for many people, we're seeing that, you know, they live a life that isn't authentic to themselves. And then they start experiencing physical health issues, back pain, headaches, you know, mental health issues, depression, anxiety. And all of these things are saying, wake up, 
like wake up your life is not yours something needs to change right and so in any case I move here I'm now in a house just with my boyfriend who goes to work and I'm in this flat in London where I don't know anyone with my young son once he came along and that's when I started experiencing loneliness mental health issues addiction depression PTSD, like it's like all the things that I had kind of kept behind a wall now that I'd had this kid and was alone questioning with my own thoughts, like what was true. Um, the next few years became arguably the hardest of my life because it's what happens once you're safe that is often the worst of it, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to ask, actually, around whether there's an element of survival mechanism. You do what is necessary. Your nervous system is completely dysregulated chronically. And then only when you're in a position that you can finally breathe, can you start to feel what's going on under the surface? Absolutely. And so I would have a a daughter a few years later and spiral into alcohol addiction Uh, And my sort of rock bottom moments were many, um, most of them to do with self-harming in a way. So hurting myself and then putting myself in risky situations, not loving myself, right? And not believing that I was so weak and I had a a whole bunch of judgment in my head. And addiction allowed me to escape some of those thoughts and the the trauma feelings in my body and my nervous system, because it's often connected as, as, you know, Gabor Mate talks, talks a lot about. Yeah. Um, and so there was a few rock bottom moments and it was through those that I then got sober, began to take responsibility for my own life and move away from they did this to me into what's the life I'm going to build and how do I um, stop the cycle of trauma to my own kids and, and that cycle. I mean, that is life changing work right there. And I cannot imagine that that is easy at all. And what? not overnight. <laughs> uh, no, 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 for sure. <laughs> what was instrumental for your healing, true healing? Um, I, I would say the the word healing, like I have a problem with it just because it's a bit of a triggering. It's a bit, it's, it's on, a misappropriate. Well, it's misappropriated by religious organizations that imagine that healing is just like love and light and prayer gives you this like miraculous change. Whereas I know how you mean it. And for me, healing um, is a lifelong journey, not just of self-awareness and working on myself, but of creating different positive actions in the world. Like, I don't think it's it's just a self thing. It's like, how do I behave differently? And that's part of the healing journey as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean... For me, it was that moment of wanting to, I mean, there were many moments when I wanted to take my own life, but I'd convinced myself my own kids would be better off without me. The amount of danger I was now putting myself and my kids in it just became like something's got to shift. And I know for many people, they never have that moment where they go, something has to change, right? Um, but luckily, it got that bad that I did have that moment. And that moment for me, which you you, you may have read about was, for some reason, I made this choice that I would postpone taking my life for one year. And again, I'm a psychotherapist now, that's not advice. Um, but I just thought, I'm going to experiment with all the things people say that can support your well being and mental health. I wouldn't have had the language like that then, um, but I experimented. 
I'm curious whether, I mean, I'd never heard that before, the idea of somebody giving themselves a fixed deadline as such to commit suicide. And did that come from a point where you felt close to doing that, but said, hold on a second, I'm just going to give this a chance? Was there some hope in it? Or what was the character of that decision? There wasn't so much hope, there was pain. And there was like, I can't live with this level of pain anymore. And so I'd like to say like, oh, this shining bit of hope came in and I grasped onto it. But it wasn't, it was like an exit strategy. I was like, okay, I, I owe this to my kids, maybe was the loose idea. But yeah. but it was like, I got some sense of like breathing space because I thought, well, if it all goes to shit and this doesn't work, I know, I know what I can do. I know what I will do, right? Yeah. And so for some reason, that gave me the space to try things, even though, you know, you often get shame, a shame response if you try things, but, but it didn't matter anymore because if I wasn't here, what would, it, what would matter? And of course, that year came and went and life wasn't perfect, but I learned that you can teach yourself to be happy. And that was a revelation to me. And so from there, I continued building and then it became hopeful because I was like, oh, there's more in my control than I thought. I can do things for my mindset, for my well-being, for my physical health. I can get all the things, right? And the hope emerged slowly. It wasn't like an overnight thing. Do you remember when the year ended or that year point came? Loosely, like it wasn't that date because I wasn't, by then I wasn't sort of crossing it off my calendar and, you know, it, it, I'd lost it a little bit, but it was sort of, I think a week had passed or something from the date and going, oh, like I'm now studying um, I, I have a support network. I can be honest with maybe three people or a small group of people. I'm sober. And that took away some of the depression from my life, you know, and I, I and it was like, oh, you know, there are things I can do. And um, maybe maybe let's just extend this and see where it takes me. Mm, that's very powerful. So in that year, what would you say were things that stood out? that really shifted gears for you, that made that point of real deep darkness feel less dark and scary? Um, it, I mean, it connects to, you know, the five ways to well-being, and, and one is around connection. And so I went to AA. I don't go anymore because it's a bit culty, uh, but it definitely saved my life. <laughs> uh, you know, as soon as people go, this is the truth instead of a truth, then I'm like, I, I got to step away. But what I was able to do was observe people being honest in a messy, real, like horrific, like just being open. And I was like, oh, wow, like people are supporting them. They're not like um, ostracizing them and kicking them out, which was my experience. Being punished. Honesty. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So so observing and watching people, testing that myself. So honesty, connection, and honesty at that time was like three sentences of like weepy kind of snotty, like this is how I feel kind of honesty, right? Um, and then it would build build from there. And then um, education and Tara Westover, like her words connected to education are just so brilliant, right? And, and you know, for me, I remember, cause I've got a book coming out. I remember getting my first library card when I was 13. Nobody... Nobody ever asked me, who do you want to be when you grow up? Because there was going to be no growing up, right? For my generation. 
But when I immerse myself in the worlds of books and I would like have contraband books, right, and be reading people's stories of what they got through and what lives they led. And the, the one profession I knew about was being a writer, right? And so that just like opened up my world to self-development and to learning and to like, okay, I can learn in this safe kind of private zone. So education was was reading, but it was also, I began studying to be a counselor and then a psychotherapist. And all of that gave me some level of meaning, I guess, or yeah. direction um, with which to go. Which is a key pillar of well-being anyway. You know, exactly. the sense of purpose and deeper meaning. Did you have help from a psychologist yourself? Not till a little bit later. I needed to kind of find my own equilibrium, I think, a little bit to even go to that level, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, at training to be a therapist, you have to get some some therapy. So I've had um, certainly get, had some help in that way, but not immediately. It was a little bit later. And sometimes I tell people, like learning to listen to yourself is important because a therapist can play the part of an authority figure telling you how to look after yourself. Right. And for me, it was like, okay, what are my thoughts? And then how do I engage with an authority figure in a way that's going to be helpful and useful to me rather than me subtly giving away my power to their process and if that makes sense yeah absolutely and I mean I can only imagine fitting in with your story there must be a deep skepticism about things that are presented as an absolute truth like this is the truism some kind of ology or ism that you must have a, a total yeah skepticism from that I imagine I do but I also am able to dance with it now like there was a time yeah. when I would push it all away but now I can be in those spaces and go, what's the one small thing that applies to me? Like, how do I glean knowledge from different schools of thought without thinking this is the, the truth or having fear that I'm going to be sucked into it in some way? Yeah. And that was present before, you think, like a fear of falling back into. I mean, I mean, we I mean, to be real, we were we were taught a fear of organized education, of government, of just anything that was organized was the opposite of what we were. So now that I don't have this truth, it's like, do I still hate all of those things that I've been trained to hate or do I where do I fit in? What's the middle ground for me? And so it's being able to dip in, learn, have empathy for a different perspective, because every perspective is just that person's childhood being formed in you know what they've learned and who they are as as an adult so when you can have that empathy and perspective you can then go well I'm just that person as well a result of my past and we're all just trying to figure it out as we go along right yeah stumbling along finding our Absolutely. way exactly yes. but you have your own organization now so tell us a little bit about that and also what values are really key in your organization I love that. Um, so uh, I run a mental health consultancy as CEO called PVL, um, and we're a, a great team and we're all about mental health in the workplace, but coming from a kind of uplifting practical standpoint rather than sort of a theoretical standpoint that isn't authentic. And the reason I started the business was because I've worked in the mental health space for a while and got very frustrated with companies who were teaching other people how to do things, but toxic themselves. I had lived that life and I thought, I can't, no, I cannot do this anymore. 
So I, ne- I never set out to, to start a business. It was just frustration. And I thought, you know, forget this. I'm not, I'm not doing it, pretending to be something and on the back, it, I can't do it for my own mental health and for my own sense of purpose. And so the seed of the business started and it's all about us leading by example. And so our values are around bravery, human connection, responsibility, action, and humor. So we like all of those to kind of give us an, an angle on mental health that challenges, but also just celebrates the hilariousness that it is to be human. Well, I like that you say hilariousness yes. is to be human because I don't know whether all of us feel like that all the time, but I mean, humor, yes, let's include it where we can. How do you actually find it implementing those overarching kind of values, the mission statement stuff and actually trickling that down into daily practice and what you do strategically in your in your business? Sure. Um, in two ways. So one is embedding it into structures and processes, right? Which we've been building from the ground up. And the other way is just informally, like how do we show up as people, right? With connection, empathy, and the way we embed it into processes could be like, you know, Monday morning, we have a a team check-in that has nothing to do with work. We are open in saying, how's your mental health today? And we know that that doesn't mean, are you depressed? Can you do your job? You know? What it means is, what's your state of mind? What do you need from the team or from yourself in order to perform and do what we need to do, right? Um, So we're bold in the types of things we say at all levels of the business, um, and we create positive accountability. So we'll say things like, what's the one thing you're going to do to invest in yourself today or this week, right? And so someone might say, I got to get an early night. Somebody might say, I'm going to get, you know, see my therapist. We have flexible working hours. So but it's a, you know, it's noticing when it's not working as well and being brave enough to press pause on a startup where you need to kind of be growing and building and go, let's, it's not worth it if we don't get this right. Let's pull back, discuss what do we need? How do we get this right? And then move forward again. Mm, I love that. It's like speaking to the idea of self-awareness, but also in a collective. And that is so important. I mean, that's what I want to go into a bit more now in terms of the your professional work. But something came to mind and I saw I think on your Instagram you shared about how we've got to get better at asking questions relating to our mental health and you said you know we often just go how are you it's just a throwaway phrase isn't it like how are you good if anyone says anything other than good and fine oh god no like don't open you know exactly like shriek away um and I can't remember what your exact response was I think it was something like what is your biggest challenge at the moment or something else and I thought do you know what? I'm actually curious how this operates on a practical level, because I think when I've been in these situations, I'm an empathic person. I'm sensitive. I'm kind, like many people listening, I'm sure. And we do care about people, but we just don't know how to really engage in that way. And some of those questions just feel really weird or fake or forced, or you're like, I'm just a bit awkward. I don't, I'm not going to be like, hi, John, while I'm making my cup of tea in the morning, like, what's your biggest challenge today? And they're just like, oh, piss off. I'm not ready for that level of chat first thing in the morning. You know, like, how does it actually operate? Um, Through time and practice and using words that feel good for you, right? If I'm thinking of the right post, even the best intention people that love people and want to get this right, say, how are you? And they mean well, right? And there was like, there was a campaign not long ago that was like, hashtag ask twice. And so it's like, how are you? How are you really? 
and mm-hmm. you know and that was supposed to get to a different level and for in some situations it probably does but i just kind of think if you're looking for a different answer then why don't we take responsibility for asking a different question right rather than expecting that person to suddenly get that oh but you're different you're willing to listen and hear something different right so it doesn't have to be my questions or the questions that we use in our business but it's like what's a once what stretch zone that would ask a question that was more specific and that showed that you were willing to listen that like that's the energy of the question which then makes somebody go oh i haven't really thought about that let me and then and then slowly you get this ripple effect of change where it's actually quite normal in our business to ask each other these sorts of questions what's your intention for the week you know uh, what what physical health challenge do you need to focus on? Yeah. And so we can normalize it, but it yeah. takes time. Exactly. And it just becomes part of the culture. And I can imagine somebody joining your business, they're going to feel what that ambience actually is. And of course, it goes without saying that the overwhelming majority of our communication is nonverbal. And that's often what we don't speak about. It's like everything that is said without words. What is your facial expression? How are you standing? Your feet pointing towards a door when you're saying, how are you? Are you on the move when you're saying, how are you? Like, you know, all of that just, that speaks volumes. Yeah. What are some common uh, misconceptions, let's say, around mental health at work that you encounter? Uh, so, so many. I mean, that if somebody is aware of their mental health or struggles with their mental health, that they're not good at their job or that they need time off. You don't, that's not necessarily the case. It might be, but there's this fear amongst managers sometimes that if we like open up Pandora's box and allow people space for emotional conversation, we won't get the job done. Everyone's going to be taking a duvet day and not showing up, you know, but actually work can be a protective factor. You, you've got community, you've got purpose, you've got routine, structure. You know, Work can be the place that people escape some of the challenges in their personal lives, right? So, so there's a misconception that everyone's gonna take time off. And there's also a misconception that if we talk about things like suicide, like depression that it, and anxiety, that suddenly it's gonna get worse. It's like the person didn't realize that's what they were thinking, but now that you said it, now I'm going to, oh my goodness, now I'm going to go there, right? Which is also yeah. not the case. So yeah. so open conversations don't make it worse and don't mean everyone needs time off. Those, yeah. are, those are the ones connected to the workplace. Yeah, I see that a lot. So would you say then that a common situation that you see with some of your clients is that there is a desire to just pull the rug over everything, not really have those open conversations, but it's producing negative results, which is why they would want to speak with you in the first place. Or is it, cause I'm curious about how that operates with like you going into an organization as a consultant around mental health. Has it, does even in that instance, it come from a place of organizations saying we have a problem around this and it's something we need to fix and it's still being driven by questions of profit and bottom line so two things and it has been changing since the pandemic i I should say um pre-pandemic you'd be surprised how many calls i would get from we've had a suicide um we now think we need to focus on mental health so that's the that's the ultimate like start from a crisis point and then build from there um i want to say luckily but of course the pandemic was really hard for lots of people 
but in a way it's also opened um, businesses up to understanding that this is an important topic. There's been a lot more research like Deloitte, the Thriving at Work Report, Business in the Community, like connecting the bottom line dollar or a pound uh, to the topic of performance, um, absenteeism, um, the, the, the great resignation, these different buzzwords that have been going around in the media, all of those are you know, challenges that a business faces when they're not mentally healthy. And so our job is to switch the narrative from one of what do we do when somebody's suicidal or depressed to one of how do we create an environment that is mentally healthy that people don't ever get to that point. Yeah, so that's our job is that education piece. Yeah, I can see that because I think there must be, it must be so common that people call in a crisis when actually it would be so much better to take a preventative approach. But how do you prove that is what people, which is the challenge, which is what we're able to do through our platform and our systems. Exactly. And But are you seeing a change, you know, with I'm hearing you mention these other consultancy agencies like Deloitte with their work connecting it to profit, that there's an opening there? Because I imagine with where things are generally at in our kind of Western business capitalist corporate culture, that it needs to be presented in that way that you will have more productivity at work and better financial outcomes if you focus on, you know, employee engagement and what that means for their work. You know, does it need to be packaged in that way for it to sell? Is that something that you think that we can actually move through and that will change in the future, but that's where the approach is right now? That's certainly where the approach is right now. You're having more senior people, sort of influencers who are in businesses who have been affected by this topic. Either they've lost a friend to suicide or their their child has struggled with poor mental health or, you know, and those people, they get it anyway, right? And so if you get the the influencers at the top, you know, one in four of us have experienced poor mental health, four in four of us have, exper- have, have been touched by this topic, right? Um, and so- there, there's businesses now where you don't need to go jumping through hoops for the numbers because they're like, we get it. We want our people to be good. How do we create that environment? Because we know it will attract talent as well and it's the right thing to do. So you do have those businesses. And yes, it's a whole continuum, right? Of the ones where you really need to go the bottom line. There's certain industries, media, construction, financial services, which are still traditionally a bit old school and male dominated and you know, there, there's a million and one reasons for this, but depending on the industry, we might show them the angle that's true for them. Do you see it being necessary to take a top down or bottom up approach in terms of mental health in the workplace? Both, all and everything. Mm. I feel like top down is ideal because of when leaders can lead by example, that creates the biggest ripple effect. But the, the, the person at any level of the business can be that kind of internal activist and you can affect your kind of ripple effect, your department, your little world, your team, and that can create change as well. So I'm hesitant to say one or the other, ideally both, you know, and they come um, in but lead, leaders yeah. have an impact for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's let's speak to both of those. So let's imagine for people listening now, whether they are an employee at, let's say, a lower level in the company or whether they're in a leadership position, what they can individually do to start moving the needle in terms of having a more healthy, mentally well workplace. So let's go over to leaders first. 
So the simplest and cheapest thing to do is because I, I did a keynote recently with 250 senior leaders from a global company. And I said, what, how many of you raise your hand if you invest in yourselves? 95% of the room raised their hand, whatever they do, therapy, coaching, exercise, pick up their kids, whatever. And then I said, keep your hand up if your whole team knows that you do those things. And about 5% of the room was left with their hands up, right? And so there are simple things, like if I've got a therapy session, if I've got a gym session, a coaching, it is in my calendar and my team can see it, right? And so that is the biggest permission giver of, yes. of other people taking responsibility for their mental health than, than anything else. And of course, there's other things we do, such as training up that senior leadership group to have the conversations that will be most useful to the individuals and their team and profits as a whole. And what do some of those conversations look like? Not with a specific I mean, example, but... Yeah, sure. Um, well, very often people are struggling and they want to talk to their manager about it because they they want them to understand maybe they need some flex time or my, maybe they're not as focused at certain times or whatever. Or maybe they're hyper-focused, but they're burning out and over time it's going to affect them. Um, I love uh, Nancy Klein's Time to Think book and methodology. You do not need to know the answers. You don't need to know anything about that specific thing somebody's going through, but you can give them the gift of time. And that is simply listening and then saying, is there anything you need to do to support yourself? Is there anything we can do to help? And I know I make it sound simple, but in training, we like get leaders to practice this. And my God, it can be difficult just to shut the hell up and not try and fix things. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, think... that's the challenge. Yeah, I think the holding space, that piece is so important about like just active listening and realizing I'm sure with the CEO, executive and so on, they're just trained to be the problem solvers, Solutions. even though a lot of them, exactly, yes. that's it. Even if sometimes they don't want to be, it's like, I don't, you know, maybe that also contributes to part of the fear around or reticence, at least to opening up these kind of conversations, because they say, I don't have time to listen to what happened to Sarah's family right now, because I've got this and this and this, and I don't know what to do in that kind of setting. But if it's just okay, just hold a little bit of space and know that that can have a really transformative impact. That's probably pretty powerful. And so many companies have benefits. They have counselors, they have apps, they have people that you can call, but rarely do people use these things because there's this mystery around it or they don't think it's confidential. So if a leader can have an empathetic conversation and then say, hey, you know, here's the number, it's in my phone. Like, you know, have you thought about calling it or I've called it in the past, you know? Then we, those sorts of services will then be utilized in a way that's more preventative rather than waiting for, again for crisis. Mm -hmm. And what about now on the other side? So people lower down, maybe people who don't want to speak up about their mental health because they fear that they would be perceived as being weak or not primed to be promoted as they wish to. So they've got to keep or maintain this facade of I'm doing well, even when they're not. So I would always, as you know, part of me is like, be authentic, say what you need, you know, but I know that some systems and cultures, um, you know, they, they won't react well. And that's true. Like they, they, you will be punished in some way or overlooked, you know, you know, so it's like, know your culture, see what the stretch zone is where you are. Because some people just go, oh, there's no point, right? 
but you probably have some forums and some groups, some mental health champion networks, right? That you can tap into of other like-minded people. So start there, see if you want to be a, a mental health champion or somebody who helps create change. So there's the one side, which is where do you need to go for help, right? And that could be your HR team calling your numbers, taking responsibility for your mental health. Um, and then there's the other part of the internal activism and your conversations with that one person in your team, the five people, the 10 people, like it's practicing bravery is what it is. And it's not only going who's depressed again, it's thinking it's being brave enough to talk about what's going well as well. What's one thing you're grateful for? That's a question that's in my team very often, especially when we get a bit like heavy with the, how are we going to solve this problem? Somebody disrupts it and they go, let's just say one thing that we're grateful for. Suddenly the energy of the room shifts and we tackle the problem in a different way. So see what responsibility you have. And I know for some people, the best decision is sometimes leaving and that's okay too. Yes. Speak a little bit more to that actually, in terms of any, any stories that you have that you've encountered yourself or with people you work with that it's like, okay, I realize that this environment is really unhealthy for me and I am feeling fear about the decision to leave I'm not sure how to approach it but I'm I think it might be the right choice how would that go sure um what's interesting is people in the well-being and and HR space the amount of people who've said to me I was there for everybody else during restructure COVID whatever it might be and then when I was struggling nobody was there for me so that, that speaks to the culture and of course, I would always say, well, see if you can, sometimes we don't ask for help, right? And then mm. nobody helps us. And we're like, how did that happen? You know, but it takes bravery to ask for help, right? Um, Especially by getting to the point that they're ready to resign and they haven't actually broached a conversation beforehand. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, And then that could open up something. So then you go, what? I didn't realize there was a problem for you. And the conversation starter is there where it could have been a little bit before. Absolutely. Um, so there is a level of honesty with yourself and then honesty with those around you to just see what opens up. And that means challenging the fear. And work is brings up the most primal fears of survival, right? Like I won't be able to pay my bills or I'm going to be destitute and homeless. Like that's how our nervous system plays it out. So you might just say, ask yourself, what's one thing that's in my control? Who's in my networks? You know, asking the question, be careful of the rationalizations, which I did plenty of my life, which is, oh, it's going to be just as bad and everywhere else. I need this paycheck. I'm not really good, good or confident at other things. I should be grateful for what I have. You know, those are, can all be a little bit sneaky if you used to not to allow yourself to not be brave and take the actions necessary to push yourself forward. Does that make sense? Good point. No, and it is a lot of it's personal responsibility that's necessary. I think a lot of people felt like that in the COVID kind of situation. Sure. I don't know to what degree that's eased up now. I guess there's different responses, but people saying, okay, people have it much worse than I do and this is necessary, so I'm just going to endure it. Sometimes not realizing that that can be the most soul-sucking, life-sucking experience that is just a waiting call for things to get worse, actually. And I think it's, you know, going back to even what you said earlier with the rock bottom moment, I mean, and then equally with the leadership saying, I phoned you because of a suicide. Like, how can we all get to a point as individuals 
in our personal lives and individuals at work where we take a proactive approach and take action before it's dramatic and before it's something that is really detrimental to our health or life in some way. Easier said than done though. <laughs> but but what, what, what does prevention mean? It means it's embedded in our routines, our interactions and our daily habits. That's what prevention looks like. So that's what each individual can think about. What do I need to perform at my best? And I don't just mean to please your job. I mean, to please your relationships, your parenting styles, your, your future, your whatever you, you end up doing, right? And so it's like the question that got me through so many things, my divorce, like when I changed my life again and again, was who do I want to be? In this stressful situation, who do I choose to be? And that gave me some agency, even if things were a bit chaotic around me. I choose to be patient. I choose to have integrity, to be kind, to be proactive, brave, whatever it might be, just a few things. And that gave me an intention about how my behavior was, not just things that were spiraling around me. Mm -hmm. What are you excited to see at the moment in terms of change that you're witnessing are there any innovative practices you're seeing or strategies at work that you're like this is the way forward i think there's lots of varied types of businesses but i'm really excited about um the forward thinking ones where this conversation is going so the ones that have mental health at board level so, that, so it's on the agenda for every exec meeting, for every senior leadership meeting. It's intrinsic to each part of the business. Um, I'm really proud and happy to see the level of openness that I'm seeing in lots of places when it comes to this topic. We have a long way to go, uh, but there's a lot more than there was pre-COVID, right, of, of, of um, companies who are highlighting stories of people's, you know, just human lives. So I think it has been more normalized. I think there's a lot of um, like tech apps and things that are saying they will solve the problem. But the thing to remember is it's never a one size fits all. And beyond any technology for good mental health, humans need connection. Yes. We need interaction and connection. We need human touch. We need eye contact. We need to ask the difficult questions. Like that's the bit that is free, um, not easy, but anyone can do it. And that's going to the thing that's going to create real change. Yeah, I see that for sure. I'm going to move into a final fast few questions now, Petra. And the first thing I want to ask you is, is there something that you used to believe that you no longer believe? Just to echo what we've been talking about, that there is one truth. And now I don't believe that. Yeah. Second, what is one quote or affirmation that resonates with you that you'd like to share? Um, the one I used to have on my phone was the best revenge is living a good life. Um, and that got me through like a decade of like, uh, um, uh, and now I think it's rather than an affirmation, it's the gratitude piece. Like when I start slipping into like overwhelm or victim thinking, which can still happen, I, I just go and my boyfriend will challenge each other. So when one of us is having a down day, we'll be like, say three things you're grateful for. You have to look yeah. into a person's eyes and say them. And so I think that helps me with perspective. Yeah. I remember the first quote that you said there about revenge living well. It was actually a quote that stood out for me too. And my, uh, when I was going through a difficult separation and it was the first thing a lawyer said to me actually. 
and what I think helped really? shift. Yeah, like really like to what degree do you need to engage in this right now is like live well and it marked me I did end up having to have a long legal fight on that front but like I think what shifted was the energy around the fight as such it was like and that this could apply in many many instances it's not getting so embroiled in the revenge the anger the all of the negative low frequency emotions that really bring us down and make us feel heavy and like life is hard and stressful versus being like where can i find aliveness and joy and health and happiness and follow that place too you know so that yeah that stands out yeah and last thing what is something that you have had to unlearn I've had to unlearn and I'm still in the process of unlearning that the world is a dangerous place. Yeah. And so that means trusting in the safety of the relationships around me in myself to keep myself safe, regardless of the world that I now see the world as a safe place, surely with dangerous things in it, but that perspective calms my nervous system and enables me to love and connect in a deeper way. Beautiful. Thank you very much for your time today, Petra. And I hope everyone listening has had some key takeaways in what they can do to make a difference on the mental health front at their their workplace. Thanks for having me. And thank you to all of you listening. I hope that you found this episode inspiring, illuminating, thought-provoking. And just a final word on my part, well done. High praise to all of you for continuously choosing self-development and growth. I totally believe in all of you, in your ability to make change and our ability to make the world a better place. 